0: Tonight we are beginning something that has been on my heart and mind um, for more than a year. Um, Just a couple of weeks, because of the grace of God and your kindness as a church, uh, we will reach the 10-year mark of uh, my time here as a pastor at this church. And in one sense, uh, 10 years is not very long Um, I know that some of you have been married for 30 or 40 or 50 years, and 10 years seems like uh, a drop in the bucket. But when you consider that the average time for a pastor to remain with a church in our nation right now is between three to four years, um, I think it's significant that you've been willing to put up with me for a decade. Um, I, I don't take that for granted at all. And I think it speaks a great deal about, about the grace of God. And I'm thankful that I, I believe that our love for one another uh, as pastors, as deacons, and as a church uh, is growing and is being, being strengthened. But more than a year ago, I, I started thinking about the 10-year mark and whether or not that might not be a good time to do something, to do something special. Is the 10-year mark a good time for us to be reminded as a church who we are and what we are all about? And the more I pursued this, the more things began to fall into place. And so what we will begin tonight, we will be doing and pursuing over the next several months of Sunday nights. You see, several years ago, our leadership here at the church proposed... And we affirmed as a congregation that we wanted to be marked by 10 distinctives. Hopefully, you remember them. Uh, our 10 distinctives that we adopted as a church that we wanted to pursue were expository preaching, biblical theology, biblical leadership, God centered worship, authentic fellowship, personal evangelism, community ministry, global missions personal holiness, and genuine love. What I want to do over the next few months is preach a number of sermons that will help strengthen us in those distinctives. I want to strengthen our conviction about those distinctives. I also want to use the Bible to take us deeper, to dig deeper into those commitments and what they, what they mean. Um, on some of the, the commitments, I'm only going to preach maybe one or two sermons. On some of them, I'm going to preach four or five or six sermons. But I want to help us as a church reaffirm those convictions and hopefully do so in a way that will secure the foundation of who we are for, for the next ten years and hopefully um, much further Uh, so that if if I were to die tomorrow, uh, I want us as a church to to be secure in our convictions and to know what is it we stand on and what is it that makes us um, what we believe to be a biblical and faithful church. Now, I'm not going to preach them in order. I'm going to take different distinctives at different times. And I had originally planned to start off with the distinctive of God-centered worship. And to speak on worship. But we're going to put that off for just a couple more weeks because I do want to take three messages tonight and two more. Um, And we're going to begin with authentic fellowship. Our commitment to authentic fellowship. So let me begin with a statement that I hope we can all agree on because it is a thoroughly biblical statement. And it's a true statement. It's this. The Christian life is not to be lived alone. The Christian life is not to be lived alone. And we know this for at least three reasons. Number one, there are many commands in the Bible that we simply cannot obey unless we are interacting on a regular basis with other believers. There are commands that Christians cannot obey without being around other Christians. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Hebrews 10.24.25, let us consider how to stir one another up, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, These are commands that God has given us for our good, We are obligated to obey them. We are sinning if we do not obey them. And we cannot obey them without interacting with other Christians on a regular basis. Second, the Christian life is not to be lived alone because part of God's method of keeping His people saved is to use the exhortations of other believers. So let me say that again. The Christian life is not to be lived alone because part of God's method of keeping His people saved is to use the exhortations of other believers. God doesn't have to use encouragement and admonishment and the words of brothers and sisters in Christ to keep you believing. God has other ways of strengthening our faith, but this is a means of grace that He typically uses. And we should consider ourselves in danger if we do not have this in our lives. We need one another exhorting us to greater faith and to greater perseverance. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart causing you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. R.C. Sproul says, It is both foolish and wicked to suppose that we will make progress in sanctification if we isolate ourselves from the visible church. Indeed, it is commonplace to hear people declare that they don't need to unite with a church to be a Christian They claim that their devotion is personal and private, not institutional and corporate. This is not the testimony of the great saints of history. It is the confession of fools. That's a strong word, but it's also true. If a person thinks he is strong enough in the faith to not need other Christians, he probably isn't strong at all. And he certainly isn't wise. Third, the Christian life is not to be lived alone because God is greatly glorified when Christians come together in unity for His praise. God is greatly glorified when Christians come together in unity for His praise. Romans 15, beginning of verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so we see that the Christian life is to be, in, to be lived in communion with other believers. And yet, this is increasingly counter-cultural. We live in a society that is becoming more and more individualistic and isolationist. Uh, gone are the days when people in a community needed each other to survive. Uh, gone are the days when people gathered together in their neighborhoods with the people that live near to them and next to them for, for entertainment and for enjoyment. With the rise of screens, televisions, computers, video games, phones, many people now spend the bulk of their free time in a world of their own. And today many of us do not know our next-door neighbors. If they were to die next week, we wouldn't know it till we read it in the paper or saw the cars parked at the house next door. The fact of the matter is that we are now living in a generation that is losing a skill that is really important in the Christian life. It's the skill to have a conversation, a meaningful conversation with other people. It is becoming rarer and rarer to find people coming together for open, honest communication. And yet the Bible tells us as Christians that we are to live our lives together. Here are some of the one another commands of the Bible. Hebrews ten twenty five encourage one another. Hebrews three thirteen exhort one another. Colossians three sixteen admonish one another. Galatians five thirteen be servants of one another. Galatians six two bear one another's burdens. Ephesians five nineteen address one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs. James five sixteen. Confess your sins to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 Comfort one another. And so whatever may happen in our culture, the church of Christ must hold fast to the practice of fellowshipping together, following Christ together. And so with that in mind, let's look at the example of the early church, beginning in Acts 2 and verse 42. And remember, this is the Word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We see the word fellowship in verse 42 they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. These early Christians were committed to these two things. They were intentional in giving themselves to these two things, the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now, I hope we would all agree that we need to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. I hope we as a church are committed to learning, understanding, believing, and putting into practice all that God has given to us in the pages of the Bible. And and I would dare say that we as a church, we work hard at trying to, to be a biblical church, a church that loves the Bible, knows the Bible, is seeking to obey the Bible. But are we as equally devoted to authentic fellowship, Do we share the commitment of the apostles in the early church to the practice of genuine fellowship? That word authentic or genuine is very important because we can have a lot of wrong ideas about fellowship. Simply coming to church and filling a seat is not fellowship. Sitting at a table in the fellowship hall and eating chicken is not fellowship. It may include these things, but fellowship is not simply that. The word for fellowship in the Greek is the word koinonia, and this word appears 20 times in the New Testament. It is a word that refers to communion, to an active relationship in which persons are united and there is true communication between them. Fellowship refers to being together together, being one, and experiencing that togetherness in active ways. Our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another is based on our legal and our spiritual union. So legally, in the courts of heaven, we have peace with God. He has legally adopted us, And we are His children. We are now, according to the courts of heaven, which is the only court that ultimately matters, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are. As Christians, we are that legally. The great judge has declared all of us who believe on Jesus to be family. And we are thus forever united together as family. But we are also united together spiritually. Because God places into the hearts of all His children His Holy Spirit. God Himself has come to dwell in our hearts. And you have the Spirit as a Christian, and I have the Spirit as a Christian, and it's not a different Holy Spirit. It's, it's the one and the same Holy Spirit uniting us all. And so fellowship is our legal unity and our spiritual unity experienced on a practical level. Fellowship is the active experience of our unity as we live life together in relationship and in activity. So think about it this way. The Bible says that we have fellowship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that fellowship look like? Well, it means that we have a real and vital relationship with God. He speaks to us through His Word. He acts in His providence on our behalf. He influences us by His Spirit. And we respond to God in prayer. We praise Him with words and with songs and we cast our cares upon Him. We seek to obey God and we depend on Him for strength. In other words, our fellowship with God is an active thing. It's a dynamic reality. As we walk through our lives, Christianity is a real relationship in which God is speaking to us, influencing us, and we are responding to Him. And this is how our fellowship is to be with one another. We are legally and spiritually united together, but that plays itself out in real life as we care for one another. Our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ is to be experienced in relationships. Now, we are brothers and sisters in Christ with a billion other Christians on this planet. You can't have real relationships with all one billion of them. But the gift of the local church is that here is the place that God has given you for you to experience your unity with the whole church of Christ in a practical and experiential way with these right here in your local church. Our togetherness in Christ is to be felt and lived in as we follow Christ together, influencing one another, speaking into one another's lives, benefiting from one another. And as we have fellowship with one another, God does wondrous things in us and for us. He continues to relate to us and to do us good as we relate to one another. The Christian life is both vertical and horizontal. We are to have fellowship with God, and in our fellowship with God, we are to have fellowship with one another. Those two things are not isolated from each other. They both affect one another. Now, when we look back over history, we see that the Spirit's work in the Church of Christ has gone through seasons in other words, the Holy Spirit hasn't always worked with exactly the same power at all the different periods of church history. There have been times when the church of Christ was very weak. There have been times of spiritual drought in which the church looked like it might not even make it to the next generation. It looked as if the gospel itself wouldn't be passed on. There have been times when false teaching seemed to be so prevalent that God's truth looked like it was about to be strangled to death. True believers were hard to find. Healthy churches were almost non-existent. But there have also been seasons in history when the church of Christ was strong. Seasons of revival, seasons of strengthening in Christ's church. There have been times and places when when God was pleased to pour out His Spirit in such power that there came to be many, many firm and holy and godly believers. Multitudes were saved. Churches became purer and purer, more like what they're supposed to be. And certainly, one of the greatest movements of the Holy Spirit of God was right at the beginning of the Church of Christ. Pentecost was Christ Himself coming upon His church in the power of the Holy Spirit as the anointing upon the church, equipping the church for the great mission that she had been given. And here, when the Spirit of God was doing this amazing work, we see that fellowship was vibrant. We see that fellowship was strong. And I would suggest that we have in Acts 2 a picture of what real Holy Spirit-wrought fellowship looks like. So what was going on here in Acts 2, 42 through 47? Well, there seem to be two different kinds of gatherings taking place. The first is a gathering at the temple. Um, we read that... that They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and of prayers. Go down to verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And so you have this first gathering at the temple. This was a large gathering of Christians. Remember, 3,000 people were converted after Peter's sermon on Pentecost. So 3,000 people had just been baptized. Can you imagine that baptismal service? 3,000 people being baptized. Um, I read a story from a a later work in church history um, where uh, an army was converted to Christ and that there were so many of them converted in one day that the pastor stood up on a cliff and pronounced the words and all of the military men dunked themselves in the water because it was too many for the one pastor to to baptize them all. you ever wondered what it was like baptizing 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 people had just been converted and within a matter of weeks we think that number jumps to at least 10,000. And some people think that that refers just to the men. That when you add the women that were involved as well, that we may be talking about 15 or even 20,000 Christians. All of a sudden, they're out of nowhere. Born again by the Spirit of God through the preaching of the gospel. This was the first harvest of the gospel. And there's no explanation for it, except that the Spirit of God was at work. So, here's the very first local church in Jerusalem. And it's thousands upon thousands of Christians. Where are they going to gather to worship? And the answer seems to be that they gathered at the temple. And based on Acts 3, verse 11, and Acts 5, verse 12, we think that these Christians gathered in a part of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade, or in your translation it may say Solomon's Portico. And this was an area of the temple that ran alongside the eastern part of the outer court, And here they were able to hear preaching. They were here to worship God. Certainly everyone else in Jerusalem knew about what was happening over at the temple. They were witnessing this daily spectacle. We're told these early Christians were meeting there every single day for a public worship service in Solomon's portico. These were amazing days. Everybody in Jerusalem talking about this As thousands meeting together every day, worshiping Jesus at the temple. One of the apostles, Peter and others, standing up before the massive church and preaching the gospel again, and more and more people being converted. The The Lord was adding daily to their number. But there was more happening than just this large group worship service. There was more being done to care for all of these thousands of brand new Christians And so we find that after the large group gathering at the temple, the Christians then gathered in small groups in people's homes. And here they likely heard on a more personal level the apostles' teaching. Here Christians were able to pray together in a more intimate way. Here they broke bread together, which included not only a full fellowship meal, but also the Lord's Supper, the consecrated bread and cup. It was in the homes that they would have opportunity to share with one another. These groups were places of intimate fellowship. Now, let me point out two marks of fellowship among these early Christians. We're going to talk about more in the next couple weeks. Tonight I'm just going to point out two marks of fellowship in the early church in Acts chapter 2. I want us to see first that it was characterized by love and second that it was characterized by prayer. So let's take love first. Excuse me. Where do I see love in Acts 242 through 47? Well, I see it all over the passage, but perhaps most clearly in verses 44 and 45. Beginning in verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, do me a favor. Look over at Acts 4, verse 32. Acts 4, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Look down at verse 34, Acts 4 verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So we see love happening in the early church. And what was this all about? As best as we can tell, here was the situation. The Feast of Pentecost brought many, many people to the city of Jerusalem. I've heard estimates that the city of Jerusalem grew by three or four times its population during the Feast of Pentecost. This was the Feast of Firstfruits that we read about in the Old Testament. Jewish tradition said that this was the day that God had given the Ten Commandments to Israel at Mount Sinai. And God's law commanded that every Jewish male who was physically able come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Some of these Jewish men came alone, but many brought their families with them. So first of all, you have this massive influx of of men and often men with their families coming into Jerusalem, Jerusalem for this feast of Pentecost. But then on top of this, there were Jewish proselytes from all over the Roman world. These were ethnic Gentiles from other nations that had come to believe that the Jewish religion was the true religion and that the Jewish God is the true God. And so even though they were not ethnically Jewish, they had taken it upon themselves to start following the Jewish God. And that's why they're there on the day of Pentecost. You ever wonder why the apostles suddenly needed the gift of tongues to be able to speak in these other languages? It was because there was this massive influx of Jewish proselytes, Gentile people who had followed the Jewish God who was there for the feast. They were there for the feast of Pentecost. So you see, the city of Jerusalem was already a large city for its time. But during Pentecost, the city swelled and overflowed. Um, Some estimate that between 2 and 3 million people were in the city of Jerusalem uh, on the day of Pentecost. Now, many of these people had come to Jerusalem expecting to go home when the feast was over. Some only had to travel a short distance home Some of them had to travel a long, long journey to get home, but they had expected to go home when the feast was over. But instead, by the power of God, many of these people heard Peter's sermon and were converted. So now what are they going to do? Maybe they heard the sermon on Pentecost. Maybe they attended one of the meetings in Solomon's portico and they heard the gospel and they were saved. What what are they going to do? Their lives have just been radically transformed. They've just been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They've just committed to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What are they going to do when they get home? There's no Christian church anywhere but in Jerusalem. It's the only local church existing in the entire world at this point. It's the church in Jerusalem. Where are they going to continue to to learn about Jesus? How are they going to, to, to grow How are they going to learn His commands, right? The Great Commission, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. How are they going to learn that if they go home? And so immediately the brand new Church of Christ had a great challenge. How are all of these people going to be able to stay in the city longer than they had planned? Who's going to take care of feeding all these people that have decided we're going to stay for a few weeks so that we can learn more about this Jesus that we're following? Who's Who's going to have them in their homes? Who's going to make sure that they have, they have clothes to wear? They couldn't go check in at the local Marriott, right? Inns in these days were, were not highly reputable places. Inns at this time were not places a, a Christian should be found. So how are they going to be cared for? Well, we see the answer. All of a sudden we have Christians no longer counting their own possessions as their own. They're selling their possessions in order to care for these brothers and sisters, many of whom come from different nationalities and speak different languages. People who were just strangers days before are now caring for one another, meeting one another's needs. And how are they learning one another's needs? Through fellowship, through these gatherings together, through these times of prayer and study of the apostles' teaching. They're they're having these house to house gatherings where Christians were able to learn and to share and to pray and to hear each other's needs and to find ways to care for one another. Mount Hermon, one of the, the great purposes of fellowship is to better know one another so that we can better care for one another. Remember in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. What was he talking about there? What Jesus said, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. And some people quote that verse as if he's talking about caring for the needy in general. And certainly we should care for the needy in general. But Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about, remember, he is the elder brother of the church. Jesus says that if you want to care for him, care for your fellow church member. As you love one another. You are loving Christ as you love the bride. You are showing love for the bridegroom. Here is how we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. By serving His people in their neediness, in their distress. Do you want to show love to Christ? Do you want to serve Him because of how good He's been to you? Care for His bride. Care for your fellow Christians. And fellowship allows us to do this best. As Christ has so wonderfully and fully met our every need, promising to bring us into a heaven and eternal life, so we are to imitate our Savior in caring for one another's practical needs. How can we love each other today? Who needs to be encouraged? Who needs to be admonished? Who, who needs a gift right now? Who needs an act of service performed for them? We won't know what one another need if we don't spend time together opening up, being honest. And so for love's sake, we need to be committed to fellowship. Well, then the second mark of true fellowship that we see in this passage is the mark of prayer. And we see it right there in Acts 2, verse 42. Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What does Luke mean when he tells us they were devoted to the prayers? There are several possibilities of what he means by that, but the most likely is that this is a reference to the set prayers that they pray together at the temple. Remember, these people were not yet thinking of themselves as Christians. The word Christian hadn't even come into existence yet. It wouldn't be till Antioch that the followers of Jesus were called Christians. Um, in fact, pretty soon you'll hear them in the book of Acts calling themselves the way. Right? This was, this was the name that they had for themselves. But in their own minds, they were being true Jews. They were continuing in the Jewish religion. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. They believed that it was the other Jews that were messing up by stumbling over Jesus. But they still considered themselves Jews. They were not trying to start a new religion. They believed that they were continuing the old religion faithfully. They were worshiping the same God that Abraham worshipped and that his name is Jesus And so, like faithful Jews, they were going to the temple each day in Jerusalem to pray. But certainly, the prayer did not stop at the big gathering. Prayer continued in the homes. In fact, we know that because we know that prayer was a part of breaking bread together in homes. Also later in the book of Acts, we see Christians gathering in homes for the purpose of prayer. My favorite is Acts 12, where Christians gather together in the house to pray that Peter will be set free from prison, and you remember what happens? Peter gets set free from prison and he shows up at the door where they're praying. And the servant girl gets so excited that she leaves Peter there at the, at the door. And the people don't believe that he's free. Anyway, it's a fun story, so read it. So, so we know that people in the early church were gathering together in small groups, in homes for prayer. And prayer is a, a mark. Of true fellowship. James 5.16 Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Do you want to grow in holiness? Do you want to make progress in spiritual things? Then you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And they need yours. There is something wonderful about Christians confessing their sins and their weaknesses, their needs and their struggles. We are all sinful. We are all needy. But we share these things with one another and pray for one another, and as we do, God works. Often, when Christians are being conquered by a sin, they begin to shun coming together in intimate settings with other Christians for fear that their sin might be found out. Uh, There is something about sin that so entangles us that it makes us want to avoid those who might see it and make us feel ashamed. I have often thought that one of the first signs of a believer uh, being kicked and beaten black and blue by a sin is that they begin to withdraw from fellowship in the church and that they begin to to be on the fringes. They don't mind slipping in a big crowd, but they're going to get out. As soon as they can, they don't want to risk being found out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Sin demands to have a man by himself. Sin withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more disastrous is the isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. So Mount Hermon, we need to gather together in this way. Not getting together to air out laundry lists of every sin we've ever committed, no. But coming together to say, brothers, sisters, you know what, we were reading that passage together. I see, that's a struggle I have. Would you pray for me about that? You know what, as, as we were reading the Gospel of John together, as we were thinking about marriage and family together tonight, we, we got to this subject and I, I was convicted. This is something I'm fighting with. Would you, would you pray for me? We need that, church. We, we need to be able to, to own up to one another in honesty about where we are in the Christian life so that we can best care for one another. Oh, if we're prideful, if we're too full of ourselves to, to admit our struggles, God's going to resist us. But if we humble ourselves and confess our sins and, and, and admit our neediness, God will draw near to us. Here are two marks of true fellowship love and prayer. Unless we forget, let us remember that Christ was our ultimate example in both. Because who has ever loved you the way Christ has loved you? Who loves you more this moment than Christ does? Is He not working all for your eternal good? He is working to bring you safely to heaven. Jesus is the lover of your soul. He is our example in loving one another. And Jesus is also our greatest example of a prayer warrior. Jesus is interceding for us in heaven. He represents you and your needs before the Father. He is the ultimate example of the kind of fellowship we should pursue, the kind that moves us to eagerly love and pray for one another. We have a wonderful Savior, and we should seek to obey Him in these things. And as we do, we should expect to see more of His wonderful work in our lives think about these things, pray about them, and let's pursue fellowship together as a church. Let's pray.